Happy holidays, everybody. Um, I'm recording this episode on December 28th, so it's that weird time between Christmas and New Year's. I'm actually recording this in my pajamas right now. So my whole family is down sick, except for me. They're actually taking a nap right now. And I realize it's been almost two months since my last episode. So it's like, what better time to record an episode? Um, so if you hear any violent vomiting or anything in the background, I might have to abruptly stop this episode and then get back to recording. Um, a lot has happened in the two months-ish since I recorded the last episode when I was in D.C. So the presentation in Washington, D.C. went super well. Um, it was a great experience. Looking forward to having some more presentations um, in 2024. Uh, I came back. The semester, um, this was actually one of the hardest semesters for me teaching, uh, which is one of the reasons I didn't um, record as many episodes as I would like. Um, lots of different things going on in this teaching semester. I think I grew as a professor this semester. Um, had some great students. Actually, had some great final papers. So I got done with grading um, second week in December. Um, had some really good psychopathology-related final papers. Um, I had a couple on Euphoria, the uh, HBO Max series Euphoria, which I'd never seen Euphoria before. Um, and now I'm starting to get into it a little bit and maybe I'll do a special episode on euphoria. Any of my listeners listen to euphoria, let listen, watch euphoria. Um, I'm curious what you think psychopathologically is going on there. Um, send me an email. I don't know. I guess my college students watch euphoria, but I don't know if my listeners do. And if that's something of interest, I'd be happy to do an episode on euphoria. So I had some great final papers, some great final presentations, um, and then sort of rolled over into holiday season. Um, and I had, if you remember back beginning of November, when I did my last episode, the last mailbag request was from Canada and I want to wish you in Canada, a happy belated boxing day. So, uh, I think boxing day is December 26th. So this is two days late. Um, but we had an episode request on ECT, um, going back to this mailbag request, um, it was a, a paramedic student wondering if I could do an episode on in, in electroconvulsive therapy. Um, she had mentioned that she had uh, been treated with ECT for anorexia nervosa back in high school. She also had comorbid depression and anxiety. Um, but she said, unfortunately, these treatments ended up almost completely erasing my long-term memory um, and left her lost in terms of her identity and feeling like she how, she knew who she was. So she had some identity disruption after the ECT. Um, she says, after a few years, I was able to build up enough new memories to feel like I had a sense of identity again. But the whole situation has left me very curious about ECT. Um, and so I thought this would be a really good episode. I actually had a final paper on ECT. And in talking with my students in my psychopathology class, um, a lot of them have been exposed to what they think they know about electroconvulsive therapy from American Horror Story, which like Euphoria, I'm sort of pop culture, not very smart. Um, I'm actually doing trivia tonight um, if my family is feeling well enough for me to get out of the house. And sort of my blind spot is pop culture. So I just mentioned I didn't really have any exposure to Euphoria. I also have no exposure really to American Horror Story, but a lot of my students were like, yeah, there's electroconvulsive therapy in American Horror Story. So I will add that to my list of shows to watch, I guess, when my kids aren't around because American Horror Story doesn't sound very child friendly. Um, so blind spot in pop culture, but you know, I'm a history nerd and history is sort of one of my strong points. So let's start with talking about the history of ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. 
So there's some really good resources I found helpful in prepping for this episode. So one of them is the book Shock Therapy, subtitled A History of Electroconvulsive Therapy in Mental Illness. And that's by Edward Shorter and David Healy. Um, There was also a really good article from 2020 from the American Journal of Psychiatry called A Brief History of Electroconvulsive Therapy. Um, So that was a really good article, a good starting point in me prepping for this episode. Um, There's a ton of resources out there talking about ECT, though. Um, There's even a whole journal dedicated to ECT. It's called the Journal of Electroconvulsive Therapy. So lots of resources out there if you're interested in electroconvulsive therapy. Um, But let's go back almost 100 years and talk about Ladislas Maduna. So Ladislas Maduna was a Hungarian neurologist. And in the 1930s, he hypothesized that there's differences in glia between people with epilepsy and people with schizophrenia. So glia, if you remember, is sort of the glue cells that we have um, in our nervous system. Glia, for a long time, nobody really knew what glial cells were and that they didn't really serve an important purpose. But the glial cells, these glue cells, are really important to the structure and function of our nervous system. And Maduna hypothesized that people with epilepsy have too much glia and people with schizophrenia have too little glia. And sort of Maduna's logic was that seizures and particularly grand mal seizures, also called tonic-clonic seizures, might increase glia in the brain. So if you're having seizures and you have uh, too much, you're having epilepsy because you're seizing, that's producing too much glia in your brain. So maybe if we could induce seizures in people that don't have um, epilepsy, maybe if we could induce seizures in people with schizophrenia who might have had too little glia, um, we could uh, alleviate their symptoms of schizophrenia. So inducing these seizures wasn't originally done through shocks. It was done through convulsant chemicals. And this included camphor. Um, And Maduna would inject camphor intramuscularly. He injected into the muscles. He also experimented around with caffeine and some other substances too, um, to induce seizures. But uh, originally, um, convulsive therapy involved chemicals and not shock. So again, we're talking 90 years ago, outside of Maduna's work, um, Caesar, uh, Caesar, <laughs> said Caesar, um, had Caesar salad for lunch. So that's a Freudian slip there. Um, seizure induction would be done through insulin, um, which also reminds me of another horrifying therapy, um, insulin coma therapy. So I could do a whole episode on insulin coma therapy, pretty terrible. Um, So insulin could be used to induce seizures. Uh, Eventually, metrazole uh, became Maduna's drug of choice. So later in life, Maduna would focus more on another terrifying therapy, Um, So this is sort of a horrific sidebar here. He also got into carbon dioxide therapy, which essentially suffocated people. Um, Maduna, again, he was born in Hungary. He would eventually move to the United States and found the still important Journal of Neuropsychiatry. So if you have some friends that are neuropsychologists or neuropsychiatrists, you can quiz them and say, do you know who the founder of the Journal of Neuropsychiatry is? Um, And the answer is Ladislas Maduna. So that was going on in the 1930s. Also in the 1930s, another pioneer in ECT, or he would become associated with ECT, was Ugo Sorletti. So Sorletti was Italian. And the story is one day he went to the butcher to buy a special cut of meat 
that they didn't have on hand. And he was redirected by the butcher to go to the slaughterhouse. So they didn't have the meat that he wanted. The butcher sent him to the slaughterhouse. And Sir Letty stops by the slaughterhouse. And while he's in there, he sees cattle basically being stunned into submission through electrical shock applied to their heads. Um, cattle are, of course, big animals, and you know they would fight being slaughtered. But if you shock them first, this essentially induces a seizure that stuns them and makes them easier to slaughter. So, like any scientist, Sir Letty began experimenting. And he found dogs. Again, he's Italian. He found dogs in the streets of Rome, uh, stray dogs, hopefully stray dogs. And he began shocking them to try to induce seizures. Um, but unfortunately, most of the dogs died. Undeterred, though, he moved on to humans as subjects and was able to successfully treat a 39-year-old person with schizophrenia found wandering in a train station in Rome. So he found this dude wandering a train station in Rome. He basically captured him for research purposes and used 110 volts of alternating current for 0.2 seconds. Um, so obviously, this would not fly in today's age of IRBs, institutional review boards. This is not ethical, would not pass muster for the American Psychological Association. I mean, he lived in Italy, but I don't even think anywhere in the world this would be considered ethical. So, um, and unlike an American horror story, uh, from what I hear, the person did not suffer any pain. Um, so this 39 year old person that was wandering around with schizophrenia didn't suffer any pain and he didn't die like the dog Sir Letty had been experimenting with. So Sir Letty was like, this is pretty awesome. I'm going to tell my friends. And this treatment quickly spread through Europe and the rest of the world very quickly. We're talking in a matter of months and it became so popular that an earlier pioneer of electroconvulsive therapy compared it to penicillin, but for psychiatry. And speaking of penicillin, Electroconvulsive therapy was also used to treat the psychiatric symptoms of syphilis, interestingly enough. So ECT used to not only treat um, schizophrenia and now depression and anorexia. We'll talk about the wide uses of ECT today. But back in the day, it could be used to treat the psychiatric symptoms of syphilis. All right, so Sir Letty's research in Italy was sort of a success story. But Sirletti, sort of like Maduna that we talked about, also had some wacky notions. Um, he thought that seizures worked chemically to treat people with schizophrenia. So hearkening back to his slaughterhouse experience, which involved cattle and not pigs, um, he decided to shock pigs instead and then slaughter them and take the electroshock pig fluid because he thought, again, the magic was in the chemicals. So after you shock something, it creates a chemical change. And why don't we just take pig fluid from pigs that have been shocked and transfuse it into people. Um, surprise, surprise, this was not a success story. So um, it was not successful um, and sort of barbaric in today's notions. All right, so we're still talking history, and all of this is happening pretty rapidly. All of this is happening in the 1930s. Maduna, Sir Letty, um, 1940. Uh, the electronics company Siemens, which is still around today, the German company, uh, came up with the Convulsor with a K because it was German. Um, and so in 1940, the Convulsor was used to administer electroconvulsive shocks. And because this was Germany in the 1940s, the Nazis began using electroshock, both in treatment and in experiments. Um, and if you're interested in this, uh, there's an article called Electroshock in the Third Reich. Also, 
1940, electroconvulsive therapy came to the United States. And sort of the birthplace of ECT in the United States was New York City and where I recorded my last episode, Washington, D.C. So in Washington, D.C., Walter Freeman, and you might recognize that name, Walter Freeman, because he was known as the father of the lobotomy. And I talked about him in an earlier episode. And for my birthday this year, I might have mentioned this in another episode, um, some of my students got me a replica lobotomy kit. And on the uh, the hammer in the orbitoclast, uh, it says Freeman on it, and that's for Walter Freeman. So Walter Freeman, the father of the lobotomy, was also a pioneer in electroconvulsive therapy. So came to the United States in D.C. and then also in New York City. In New York City, A.E. Bennett, who was of the pharmaceutical company Squibb, which is now known as Bristol-Myers Squibb, began developing a muscle relaxer named Intocostrin. And Intocostrin um, would help to uh, relax muscles while the electroconvulsive therapy was administered. Um, and I just got done reading this book called The Empire of Pain. Uh, it's a best-selling book, and it's on sort of the Oxycontin um, epidemic and the lawsuits that would go against the Sackler family. And A.E. Bennett, um, trivia-wise, if you've read The Empire of Pain or watched the series on Netflix, I think there is one. Um, Arthur Sackler, Sackler uh, founded Purdue Pharma um, and actually worked with A.E. Bennett. Um, Sackler, uh, and, and if you read The Empire of Pain, there's actually a chapter on Sackler's sort of psychiatric treatments with Purdue Pharma, uh, developed a histamine therapy to, um, and the histamine therapy, instead of shocks, um, would try to induce seizures, would try to induce sort of physiological change um, in the body uh, to treat depression and schizophrenia. So histamine therapy was another sort of weird, he thought histamines were just as involved as neurotransmitters today, as we think about neurotransmitters today in psychological and psychiatric illness. Interesting. Okay. Fast forwarding to the 1960s, 1962, Ken Kesey, you should know that name if you're a trivia buff, because Ken Kesey always comes up on Jeopardy, crossword puzzles, that sort of thing. He was the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, that was sort of the 1960s version of American Horror Story, um, in which people got really scared of electroconvulsive therapy. ECT and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was used as a punishment. Um, and sort of there's this phrase that ECT was brought from the slaughterhouse, hearkening back to Sir Letty's experiments with ECT and, and cattle and pigs, to the madhouse, uh, which would be sort of the asylum of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And while it sounds horrific, there were some horrifying treatments that ECT replaced. So in the mid-1900s, ECT was actually seen as sort of a humane form of treatment. Um, lots of people that pioneered ECT were trying to re replace these barbaric treatments um, that existed before ECT. These treatments, by and large, were what we call somatic treatments because they treat the body, somatic therapies. And one of the more interesting ones I found in doing research for this episode was the Scotch douche. Um, you can look up Scotch douche, uh, but the Scotch douche basically involved alternating, blasting your body with hot and cold water to try to get you to regain your senses. Um, interesting treatment. All right, let's talk about modern day applications of ECT. 
And I thought we would get into sort of the protocol for administering ECT. And this can vary. Again, we have a journal of ECT that talks about all different sorts of variations and best practices in um, administering electroconvulsive therapy. Um, generally speaking, uh, because you're using um, electrical leads, uh, you need some sort of uh, conduit for the electricity that's not going to burn the skin. So a lot of times electrogel will be used or semi-porous gauze will be used. That'll be applied to the skin um, and the application of the ECT will go through this electrogel or the semi-porous gauze. Uh, we'll also find variations of placement of the ECD, where the electroconvulsive shocks are administered. Um, and generally speaking, the size of the electrode that we're talking about is about the size of a half dollar. Um, and the placement of this half dollar uh, could be unilateral, which would be one side of your brain, or bilateral, um, application, which would be both sides of your brain, both sides of your head. And a lot of times it's done temporally, so near your temple. So it could be done on one side or it could be done on both sides. And there's different indications for whether it's unilateral or bilateral. Um, one of the more common unilateral, so one side application uh, techniques is doing right unilateral. Right unilateral tends to be slower to work in combating the symptoms of depression but it's associated with less memory side effects. Um, also, so I mentioned temporal, there's what's called bifrontal, which would be more on your forehead. Um, that has been a method of ECT uh, administration. Um, most people, um, and uh, almost always in the United States, if you're administered ECT, you will be given general anesthesia. So you'll have an IV going the entire time. Um, you'll be monitored throughout the process through EEG. Um, and so you'll have e an e or you won't be looking at the EEG because you'll be under general anesthesia. Um, but your administrator will be watching your EEG readouts um, to see if the ECT is working and how it's working. Um, less fancy than the EEG, your right foot can also be an indicator that you're having a physical seizure. So they might look at your right big toe. Um, you might ask how many treatments you need of ECT for it to really work. Um, protocols generally range from six to 12 treatments. Um, and you'd be receiving treatment two to three times per week. So if you're on the 12 treatment protocol, you know, we're talking four to six weeks of ECT, which is, you know, a lot of work to take off if we're talking about, you know, general anesthesia and having an IV, that sort of thing. Um, Conditions, we mentioned schizophrenia, we mentioned sort of depression. This is not going to be your frontline treatment for depression. Um, right now, it's really indicated for TRD, which stands for treatment-resistant depression. And so if your first lines of antidepressants aren't working, your SSRIs, and then maybe even your tricyclics or MAOIs aren't working, or your atypicals, um, you might be a good candidate for ECT. Um, and especially treatment-resistant depression associated with suicidality. Um, we tend to see better outcomes with ECT, uh, with uh, suicidality and treatment-resistant depression. Um, but it's also indicated for mania um, and schizophrenia. Again, historically, long history of treatment of schizophrenia. It was what ECT was originally designed for, was to treat schizophrenia. Uh, but especially schizophrenia with catatonic symptoms. 
Um, there's also ECT that's applied to agitation associated with dementia, um, and then even protocols of ECT with eating disorders like anorexia nervosa and the mailbag question. Um, this is not without side effects and risks. Um, uh, one of the big risks is memory loss, uh, which would affects about one in four people undergoing ECT. And uh, generally speaking, this tends to be short-term memory loss and not long-term memory loss. Um, but with this short-term memory loss, you can get both retrograde and anterograde amnesia. Um, there are also risks that this can affect your executive functioning. And if you're curious about what executive functioning is, I have an episode on that. That would be season three, episode 25. You're also going to have the risks that go along with general anesthesia, which uh, is about one in 10,000 people undergoing respiratory or cardiac arrest while under general anesthesia. So that's sort of a quick and dirty overview of electroconvulsive therapy. I'm sure I could dedicate a lot more time to this. If you have questions on ECT, send them to me. If you have other episode requests, send them to me. My email address is ctaylo41 at cbu.edu and put the subject line mailbag and I will, uh, I'll try to get back to them. I'm going to have several things in the mailbag since it's been so long since I recorded an episode. Um, I'm going to start with the first mailbag request and then hopefully I'll get to others um, as we go along through different episodes. Um, so this first one is actually on borderline personality disorder. And in going back and lo looking at like how many listeners I have for each episode, my borderline personality disorder episode actually has the most listeners, I think, of any episode that I've done so far. So it's probably a popular topic, probably something I could do multiple future episodes on. Um, and so this mailbag email says, most of what I say is anecdotal. Um, I've done research on BPD. However, I don't think a lack of education is the cause for why people with BPD um, are called exhausting um, by clinicians. And I just wanted to say, I love your episode. However, I must say I inevitably took offense at the idea that therapists often view BPD as an exhausting disorder to work with. I have BPD and the process of entering affordable therapy has been very difficult for me. And I would like to believe that I am one of the more reasonable clients. It is true that it is an exhausting, um, to have a relationship with somebody who has BPD but even more so um, as someone who is hyper aware and loves to intellectualize emotions. Um, I find it very difficult to separate my outbursts or extreme emotions from myself. I'm some, as someone who befriended another person with BPD, I realized how extreme BPD really was and it was exhausting to be friends with them and I cut them off for the betterment of my mental health. Um, though it may be true that we are exhausting to be around, I feel as if it is necessary to talk about negative perceptions of BBT and to keep them at a minimum or at the very least preface them that with that um, there is personal experience, there's, uh, there's horror stories, but those should be taken lightly because they're not essentially, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, uh, uh, representative of everybody with borderline personality disorder. And that psychologists and especially psychologist educators and, uh, should be dissuaded from perpetuating the stigma around borderline personality disorder. Um, uh, so I did a lot of reflecting after reading this email. And I, I also went back and listened to my episode on borderline personality disorder. And coincidentally, this email was sent right before I started teaching about borderline personality disorder this semester. 
Um, and I do want to say, I, I want to apologize for sort of how I talk about borderline personality disorder, because I think most of my case studies um, do portray borderline in sort of a negative, irrational light. And I don't think that that's fair. Um, I don't think that's a fair representation of borderline personality disorder. And I don't want to dissuade uh, lots of people that listen to this podcast, who many of you are future clinicians, from wanting to work with people with borderline personality disorder, um, because it is a it's a common disorder, um, and it's one that you know I've had people close to me with borderline personality disorder, um, and so to like portray them as somehow unlovable or exhausting to be around, I think is really unfair. Again, most of you are future clinicians that are listening to this episode or are really passionate about psychology, and I don't want to dissuade you from working or wanting to work with people with borderline personality disorder. Um, and so, uh, admittedly, some of my own notions about borderline have been biased by experiences that I've had with clients or, or close friends. Um, and this email reminded me a little bit of a client I had with borderline personality disorder. Um, and in the very first session, she said sort of apologetically, she said, I am a lot. Um, like she was apologizing on the front end for being a lot. And to me, this was such a profound statement because on the surface, it seems to be, you know, a preemptive apology. Like I'm a lot, I'm sorry. I realize I have all this baggage, whatever. Um, a lot of the negative perceptions that I just sort of mentioned. But like reflecting deeper, being a lot is such a complex thing um, because being a lot can be a lot of really good things too. So people with borderline personality disorder often have unimaginable trauma histories. They've seen a lot. They have intense feelings. So they feel a lot. They have this rich emotional spectrum that you know I'm honestly jealous of. Um, and ultimately... I hope she was able to conceptualize her self-worth as meaning a lot. So I think borderline personality disorder, there's a lot that's there. And I need to, I hope to do a better job of describing the beauty of borderline personality disorder. So borderline personality disorder in reflection is sort of a microcosm of the human experience. It's an application. It's an application. It's this blowing up in proportion of thoughts and feelings and actions and everything that we love about psychology. Um, and I absolutely don't want to scare any of you out there away from this. Um, uh, as for like personal theories about borderline personality disorder, I really like Linehan, Marshall Linehan's hypothesis on invalidating environments. Um, I think borderline personality disorder is a trauma response. And in some ways, it's an adaptive trauma response. Um, so hopefully this doesn't scare you off from working with people with borderline personality disorder. I need to be more aware of stigmatizing and uh, generalizing and all of that stuff in, in future episodes. But um, if you have other episode ideas, you want me to talk more about a specific aspect of borderline personality disorder, what have you, um, send me a mailbag request. Uh, nobody has vomited in my family in the background. I don't hear anybody awake right now. So this is a successful episode. I made it to the end. So I'm going to get off here and enjoy the rest of nap time. I uh, hope you all have a happy new year. And one of my resolutions is to, to post more episodes in 2024. So until next time, take care and stay well.